As I moved into season four of this podcast, I made a major shift. Hurry Slowly is now an ad-free, listener-supported podcast, and I'm relying on your contributions to continue to do this work. If you value the ideas offered by this podcast, I would invite you to make a one-time or an ongoing donation at hurryslowly.co slash donations. Anything that you can offer would be deeply appreciated. I'm Jocelyn K. Gly, and this is Hurry Slowly. Today, I'm in conversation with Mickey Cashton. That we live as individuals makes us extremely weak. Extremely weak in terms of being able to create a good life. Sure, if we have enough privilege, we can compensate for that weakness by buying and buying and buying things and relationships and services. But it doesn't actually give us rootedness, care, community, wholeness, reverence for life, all the things that make for real experience of aliveness and flow. Mickey Kashtin is a writer, a teacher, and a facilitator. She is the co-founder of Bay Area Nonviolent Communication and the initiator of the Nonviolent Global Liberation Community, as well as the author of several books, including Spinning Threads of Radical Aliveness, Transcending the Legacy of Separation in Our Individual Lives, and Reweaving Our Human Fabric, Working Together to Create a Nonviolent Future. Mickey regularly writes and hosts conversations about facing privilege, overcoming patriarchy, and questioning money. I'm excited to have Mickey on the show today because I find that as I extend the tendrils of my own thinking about our toxic drive for productivity further toward the root causes, I'm spending more and more time thinking about capitalism and the extractive mindset that it seeks to embed in all of us. Mickey has thought deeply about how our reliance on money and exchange more broadly and the systemic power differences that limit access to the resources that it creates pull us out of relationship with each other and stunt our ability to care for ourselves and for one another. As we look to change the way we engage with the world and relate to each other with new consciousness, I think she has much wisdom to offer. For context, you should know that I had a terrible cold while recording this interview, so my voice is a bit weaker than usual. And I would also like to mention that this conversation was originally recorded in front of a live Zoom audience on November 9th, 2021, with folks from my Radiate community in attendance. And you'll hear a few nods to that in my conversation with Mickey. All right, that's it for getting oriented. Let's dive in. So for those who aren't familiar with your work, I would love to start by having you share a little bit about yourself. You use the term practical visionary to describe yourself. And in your bio, you write that you are constantly destabilizing the conversational infrastructure that sustains the status quo. Could you say a little bit more about what that means for you and how you see your work as a practical visionary? For me, these are two separate questions. So I will answer the practical visionary first, and then what I mean by destabilizing the conversational infrastructure that sustains the status quo. So we have a lot of visionaries in the world, tons of people who think 
at the level of vision. And what I see is very often that vision is beautiful and gorgeous and inviting. And it doesn't have practical, concrete, specific ways of what does it actually look like? What do we actually do? What will be different when we wake up in the morning? If we live in that visionary world, how would it, how would it influence the actual way that we live? And more significantly, are there things that we can do right now, even in the world that we live in, even though we won't be able to achieve the vision, are there things we can do right now that move in that direction, that give it shape, that begin to experiment with little bits and pieces of what the vision would be? So, for example, in one of the books that you mentioned, I have a collection of 12 stories that take shape, that not take shape, that take place in a visionary world. The book doesn't talk about how we get to the vision, but imagine that, poof, we were transported to that visionary world. How, how will life look like? So the 12 stories are, the, it's kind of like a, a day in the life of dot, dot, dot. So each of them describes like one day in the life of someone. And through that, you see how that world works. I have, um, a few years ago, I submitted uh, with a group of people an entry to an international competition about creating a global governance uh, model that would replace the UN. I didn't expect that you would, we would win because um, we were tech light and radical heavy. And I was predicting that the entry that would win would be take tech heavy and radical light. And that's exactly what happened. But at least we have it. It's a blueprint for how the entire world population could govern itself so that everyone would be able to participate in decisions that affect their lives. So that's the practical visionary part. And disrupting the conversational infrastructure is endless. Every, every place, every connection, every set of things that happen has scripts about what everyone is supposed to do and how everyone is supposed to engage. And I break those as much as possible all the time, not for the purpose of breaking them, for the purpose of showing vision. So I don't break them to be disruptive. I disrupt to be visionary. So an example, one of my favorite examples is um, when I was living in the Bay Area, I would go to the farmer's market every week. And there's three weeks in that farmer's market where they have mulberries. They are amazing. Just for three weeks. It's the kind of thing that I never made it home with the mulberries because I would eat them along the way. And so, and I had a little cart that I was walking around with. And I one day walk and this woman says, what's that? And I say, those are mulberries. Here, have one. Breaking the rules of how you engage with a stranger, right? And she said, oh, no, 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 thank you. I said, why not? Really, they're really good. Why don't you just try one? And she resists and resists. Finally, she takes this scrawny little kind of like somewhat deformed one. And I say, no, here, take this one. Take a good one. She takes it. And she says, how much should I give you? And I say, I don't want you to give me anything. And then I walk and I see she puts $2 in my cart. 
And I say, no, you're demeaning this interaction by putting money into it. Here, take your money back. And then she woke up from the trance. I don't have any other words. She suddenly looked at me and she said, who are you? How did you come to be this way? So I broke. I broke the script. But that's just one example. And this is a, a lovely, fun example. It also gets to be tricky when there's pretense, when we don't talk honestly. I push for more intimacy, for more honesty, more transparency, more care for the whole. All the things that are in the vision, I try to embody them in the nanoseconds where they, where they could be brought up. Was that clear enough? Absolutely. Yeah, I think so. And I want to talk a little bit more about scripts and uh, transforming them later in the interview. But to come back to that status quo that you were mentioning, I think a big part of that for all of us right now is that we're living in this world that is really hyper-focused on productivity and accumulation, which has, in my opinion, really created this kind of extractive mindset that colors all of our interactions from, you know, how we care for and tend to our own bodies or more often not, you know, run them into the ground to how we navigate our relationships with others, which are, you know, permeated by this kind of ethos of exchange, right? This idea that we should be getting our due. You write quite a bit about this paradigm of accumulation and exchange and, an alternative way of relating, which is rooted in flow. And I'm curious, could you talk about accumulation and exchange as a model versus flow? Yeah, totally. So um, some bit of this came to me in a kind of a magical moment. I was in Chile doing a training and I was in a retreat center that um, was built at just as close as possible to the point where the liberation from the Spaniards started in Chile. It's called Punto Cero, which means point zero. Um, and it's built as much as possible using indigenous principles. So there are no straight lines in it. Walking from the kitchen to the uh, hall, you don't walk on a straight line. You follow the contours of whatever is there. So it's very different. And when I was there, I, I actually felt connected to Gaia. It's very hard to put it any other words, like literally felt connected to Gaia, which didn't happen before. It happened a few times since, but that was the first time when I felt it. And from there, I got this sentence that came to me. Life is arranged to care for all that lives through an endless flow of energy and resources. That doesn't mean you don't die. That doesn't mean you don't, if you're prey, that somebody else won't eat you. But fundamentally, there is this mysterious flow of everything. Later in that week, I understood viscerally, we humans have interrupted that flow. It didn't start with capitalism. Capitalism is a pretty late expression of it. It started several thousand years ago when we lost trust in life. And I, I'm not going to get very much into it, but it's loss of trust in life that brought us patriarchy, which isn't about men. It's about control because 
patriarchy is about the father-child relationship that is the only way that you can pass on accumulation. And if the father-child relationship is important, then controlling women becomes important. So I'm not going to say much more about that, but that is when accumulation began. Accumulation began as a trauma response to loss of trust. Just think about it. Why would you ever want to accumulate anything if you trusted life? You wouldn't. So loss of trust begins the project of accumulation, which intensifies as you lose not only trust, but also faith, which happened at the 18th century. It's been intensifying for several thousand years, but it got a sharp incline since the Enlightenment. And this is my own personal theory, which is that you don't need faith when you have trust. Because when you have trust, it's organic. You are within the flow of life. It all You trust it. You flow with it. When you lost that, in order to have any access to reverence for life, you need faith to jump over the trust that you used to have. Not you individually, but we collectively. But even with faith, even with the distortion of it, there was some reverence for life. Once you lose that too, everything becomes dead matter. And when it becomes dead matter, extraction has no limits, no reason to limit it. There's nothing sacred to protect. So you just extract and extract and extract. First out there, then in here. So all that you're saying is coming from that extractive thing that started several thousand years ago, but accelerated and became limitless with capitalism and it's been accelerating and the acceleration has been accelerating in the last 50 years or so, such that we're now on the brink of extinction if we don't turn things around. So that's about accumulation. It's very, let me say why accumulation interferes with flow. We live in a closed system. The only input that we have from outside our system, it's a huge input, but the only one that we have is the sun. Everything else is finite within the earth. So if you accumulate anything, you remove resources from circulation. And that means there is less available for others. So a couple of years ago, I was in conversation with someone and I wish I remembered who it was so I could credit them. And the person said, we don't need to take care of extreme poverty. What we need to take care of is extreme wealth. If you take care of extreme wealth, extreme poverty will take care of itself. That's, that's the relationship. So poverty and wealth are two facets of the same thing. What we have done is we've turned natural abundance into the twins of artificial surplus and manufactured scarcity. They come together. And the, the exchange interferes with flow because when you exchange, you cancel flow. When I give you something, it generates flow. I give it to you. There's now energy in you. You will do something with that energy and pass it on. That's how flow works. 
if you give me right back because you feel obligated, you don't want to have debt. Debt is like one of the worst things. You accumulate debt, that's no good. But if you, you don't want to be to owe me anything, you give it back to me, then there is neither giving nor receiving that happens. It's all instrumental. So exchange supports accumulation and exchange empties relationships. If you go back to the example of that woman, she had such a hard time receiving that mulberry from me. She had to give me money to get out of just receiving. If we want to restore flow, fundamentally it means uncoupling giving from receiving. So we learn to do unconditional giving, which is hard, but only half as hard as unconditional receiving. All of us came into the world through unconditional receiving. There's no way that we could have survived infancy if there wasn't unilateral giving. So we know it. We have a cellular memory of what unilateral gifting is, maternal gifting. Genevieve Vaughan, who is one of my um, inspirations, talks about the maternal roots of the gift economy. We have the longest childhood, the longest dependence of any creature in the world. And that dependence means that human mothering, which doesn't have to be done by women, but the act of mothering is the act of orienting to another person's needs unilaterally. When we have received that in our bodies from infancy, but then we encounter the world of exchange, which is a brutal encounter for all of us. So that's about how exchange and accumulation interfere with flow. And restoring flow is deaccumulate, uncouple giving from receiving, do unilateral giving, do unilateral receiving, and try to live that way and see what happens. I'm curious to ask you, Mickey, how does this kind of huge shift that you're talking about map onto how we care for each other? And you were just kind of starting to go there. Um, you know, right now we're often using words like self-care as this kind of pushback against our current system in which we extract so much from each other and from ourselves. What does care of the self and care of the community look like when we're in flow? Thank you. I will say that as much as we can orient towards flow as individuals, there is no flow as an individual. So the very question of self-care already presupposes individuals fending for themselves. Absolutely. That is how capitalism can continue to function. If you look at it historically, for the 200 years that were the on-ramp of capitalism, the, um, from the 15th to the 17th century is an on-ramp. It's before capitalism completely set root. The main project was to un um, unsettle people's relationships with community and with land. And it took multiple forms. I had never understood this until I read 
the book Caliban and the Witch by Silvia Federici, in which she shows how all the different things that happened during those 200 years had the same purpose. And the purpose is to create people who are not part of a community and not connected to land who can be exploited for gain. That includes the land enclosures where people were brutally taken away from land all over Europe that happened. Um, it includes colonization, it includes the slave trade, and it includes the witch hunts. All of them are processes of brutality that created the labor force and the individuals. That, that we live as individuals makes us extremely weak. Extremely weak in terms of being able to create a good life. Sure, if we have enough privilege, we can compensate for that weakness by buying and buying and buying things and relationships and services. But it doesn't actually give us rootedness, care, community, wholeness, reverence for life, all the things that make for real, uh, um, a real experience of aliveness and flow. So if you ask me, the point is not what do I do better as an individual or what do I do better as a couple? The question of our time is how do I move towards community? How do I move towards creating shared risk with more and more people? Because in reality, we are one huge shared risk group of 7.8 or 7.9 billion people. But we, we are able to mask it from ourselves through the processes that capitalism has created that move resources massively from one place to another, making it look like we are okay, making it invisible to us, the impacts of what we're doing on people who are still struggling uh, to even feed themselves and their children every day. So, so I don't have an answer other than community, move towards community in any way that you possibly can. And I know this is a community project, but community isn't about shared interests. If it remains at the level of shared interests, when you're sick, the people with shared interests are not going to feed you. When you somehow gain a windfall, you're not going to share it with the people in your shared risk group. You're going to keep it to yourself. So it, it doesn't become a community until you tie yourself to each other materially, not just spiritually, not just relationally, not just through rich conversations, but materially. You are the ones you turn to each other for when you need something. I, I am feeling sad imagining that this may be really, really hard to take in. And I don't know if uh, that's so. It's hard to know. But I, I am, that's what I am with because it's shocking to realize that the life of an individual is already a symptom of the difficulty rather than something to work on. It is a lot to take in, but I think it's um, what we need to hear, which is why you are here with us right now. 
going a little more into some of the byproducts of that disruption of community that you were describing. During another interview that I was listening to as I prepared for this, I heard you say something intriguing about how wisdom relates to flow and how it gets pushed out of or neglected by this accumulation and exchange-based paradigm that we're currently living in, in capitalism. Could you speak a little bit more about what happens to wisdom when we start to see this um, community dissolve and when our relationships really become permeated by this idea of exchange? Uh, It's the separation that interferes with wisdom. Because um, I'll, I'll give you an example. It's a story that most people don't know. Um, a town, I, I think it was called Greenberg, I'm not positive, in Kansas, uh, was wiped out by a tornado. Now, um, your listeners may not all know that Kansas is, is a hotspot of right-wing populism in the United States, if people listen to you from outside the United States. Um, so this town was wiped out, 1,500 people. 500 people decided to just move on, start a life somewhere else. A thousand people took whatever money they received from the government in support of restoring the town and hired a very innovative uh, architectural company to work on how to plan their town. These are people from a place that no one expects much of within the United States. That's the reality of how people think about these people. I didn't look at the details, but apparently at the end of this process, they created a town that would be the envy of greens anywhere. Why? Because they had a practical problem to solve that they all came together to solve. That is key to creating wisdom. Wisdom is not abstract. Wisdom is practical. When you have a practical problem to solve, that everybody is a stakeholder in, that people have the authority to implement the solution to, then divergences become fertile ground for integration, and integration is what creates collective wisdom. So exploring another angle on this sort of separation from community that we're talking about, uh, I did an interview a few months ago with a writer and activist called Mia Birdsong, and we talked in that interview about how people who are viewed as successful by the dominant culture are typically very lonely and isolated, though they have all these sort of trappings of professional and material success. And You've written a bit about how, for those who are privileged, money allows us to retract from relying on relationships and community because we know if we need help that we can pay for it. Could you talk about how our reliance on money disconnects us from community a little bit more? I remember years ago, I was talking to a woman who lived in an extraordinarily impoverished community Uh, somewhere in the south and she said this line she said we don't have money here but we have plenty of resources we have each other so when you don't have money to buy your needs you know that you need each other 
the fact that we have money doesn't mean we don't need each other. It just means that we can pretend like we don't. Because I still, I'm not growing the, the wheat that makes the bread. I'm not um, doing any of it. I just go to the store, give money and buy the bread. But that doesn't mean I don't depend on the long chain of people who bring that bread into the supermarket. So our, we are as dependent on each other, but we don't have the relationship to hold us together. So we navigate all of it through the exchange of money and it keeps us separate from each other all the time. So going a little more into the scarcity that's underpinning that, um, which is of course what the whole concept of economics is based on, you know, this idea that there's not enough for everyone. And I know this is something that you've written about. I think that a lot of the thinking that we engage in around scarcity is related to this sort of survival of the fittest concept that we get from Darwin and this idea that competition is right and natural, that it's not just the way that you know humans work, but it's the way that nature works. But now we're seeing a lot of new research coming out, a lot of it from female scientists, that survival of the fittest is perhaps not, in fact, how nature works, um, that there's a lot more symbiosis and sharing and collaboration in the natural world than we maybe understood before. The research of Suzanne Simard, who I know you're familiar with, um, about mycelium networks under the forest floor or the uh, wood wide web, as some people call it, is a really great example, I think. And she's shown how some mother trees will send nourishment to weaker sicker trees in the forest that need help and that this happens across different species of trees. So, you know, this kind of Darwinian paradigm of survival of the fittest on which I think so much of this ethos of capitalism is resting is starting to be called into question, which makes, you know, me wonder then if human nature is something quite different from what we thought it was. So I'm curious what's your view of how capitalism understands human nature versus how it truly is? Uh, first of all, it's an interesting little factoid that Darwin didn't talk very much about survival of the fittest. It's not like that shows up every page of his uh, writings. It's very little. It was accentuated and taken on by social Darwinists more than by Darwin himself. But that close thing. There, there are m many different theories about what drives evolution. One that I like is, is called uh, genetic drift rather than natural selection. And in a, the model of genetic drift implies relationship. It's not like there is an environment and there's an organism that adapts or doesn't adapt. It's that organism and environment coexist and co-create each other. Um, so I'm, I'm not a biologist and I don't know much to say about this, but it it just shows me, like you say, it's female scientists suddenly are seeing different things. It shows me that perception is already colored by the meaning that we bring to it. We will see different things based on what we expect to see. So that's number one. Number two, I don't believe anybody is equipped to talk about human nature. The reason is that we're so, so far from the way that evolution prepared us for, designed us for. We live so far from there that we 
can't make inferences about human nature based on what we see in humans now. Because we live in societies of a certain kind. I'll, I'll give you an example. There's a research that was done uh, by, um, I can't, Lawrence Kohlberg on moral development. And he talks about there being six stages of moral development. Turns out that the entire sample was male college students. And, um, and so all of that is designed based on that. And then, amazingly enough, you apply it to women and instead, and, and they rate two or three on a scale of six. Similar indigenous people, people in the global south. What does that tell you? That tells you that, that it doesn't actually measure human nature. It measures characteristics of particular people socialized in particular ways. We don't actually know. So I'm going to let go of any pretense that I know what I'm about to say. And then I will say some things. But it's important for me to have humility because I think the absence of humility is part of what we bring into it. So many times I say things and I say, I really don't know. These are my thoughts. These are my conclusions from what I've read and what I've thought. But I'm not pretending that this is what I know because this idea of knowing is itself built into the control paradigm. So um, I, when, on the basis of what I have read, my conclusion is that humans evolved to uh, exist in groups of 100 to 150 people within which we share resources collaboratively. Within those groups, we, are, we kind of exist in pods of five to eight people who care for each other more intensely. I am in an extremely slow process of beginning to try to build a community based on those principles. So right now there are four of us. So we are kind of like a pod, not a full community. But within that pod, the four of us, we make all our decisions together. We share all our resources. We constantly are learning to see what does it mean? What are we learning? What are we learning? What are we learning? And we live in enormous flow because we don't even try to be fair. So there, uh, uh, two of us are men, two of us are women. The cooking and cleaning, 80% of it is done by the men. Now, is that delicious or what? Is it fair? It's just where the capacity exists. So um, is that human nature? I don't know. I have inklings. I see signs. None of us like to be told what to do. All of us suffer when we are isolated. How is it possible that living in control and competition is human nature if we all suffer from it? I don't have a sense that nature designed anything for suffering. If you look at other creatures, they don't suffer. They may be eaten at the end. That's fine. That's part of the deal. But there is no suffering. I remember a moment about a year ago, I was driving somewhere in Scotland 
and there were two crows. They were just hanging out on the side of the road. And I suddenly saw, I felt their freedom. They were so completely free. And I saw that that freedom was completely vulnerable. Any second, something could happen to them and they would be gone. But the willingness, which may be unconscious for them and maybe not, we don't know, the willingness to accept that radical, irreducible vulnerability creates enormous freedom. My sense is that something related to human nature, that we want that freedom, we want that connection, we want that vulnerability, we want that co-creation, we want to be able to lean on others. That seems true to me, but I can't say. And if, if I read what indigenous people write and the little bits of data that we have on pre-patriarchal societies, there wasn't the amount of suffering that we have now. That is very evident to me. So it doesn't make sense to me that if we live by our nature, we would be in so much pain. So, so much of what you're talking about um, is a huge shift away from where we are right now. And so I want to take a moment to speak to the challenges of transformation. In your book, in your book, Spinning Threads of Radical Aliveness, you write, quote, transformation requires us to actively seek to liberate ourselves from the thinking that surrounds us and from the habits of action we have internalized both as individuals and in groups. Simply put, we are likely to persist in thinking and acting on unconscious assumptions of separation, scarcity, powerlessness, and the importance of controlling the natural even when we no longer consciously believe in doing so. And, you know, as I myself have come into consciousness, this is a process that I would say I've really experienced again and again, the sense that I have changed my views, but that it can be extremely hard to live those values when everyone around me believes something else. So I'm constantly having to kind of shore up that consciousness, right, again and again and again. So I'm curious if you could talk a little bit more about the challenges of the ongoing work of embodying transformation. Yeah. First of all, support, 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 support. Get yourself support. It's not a one-person job. It's not possible to, to do a one-person job. Second, what I have done for myself is I mentioned earlier this notion of fairness. I've released fairness. I aim to live based on, on the possible, not on the fair. What is really possible? And that means to me, because I have been on the journey for a long time, in most of my relationships, I care for things, navigate things, integrate things much more than whoever else is there. Why? Because I can. If I was committed to fairness, I would say, why should I do more than you? I shouldn't, but I choose to because I know that if I take responsibility for caring for both your needs and mine, then overall, 
our needs will be cared for better than if I wait for you to do that if you are earlier on the journey. So that, that's a piece that, um, that for many people is hard to accept. And yet if you accept it, um, it's, it's a lot easier. I wouldn't do it beyond capacity. For many years I was doing it beyond my own capacity and, and I fried myself a bit. I'm recovering from that. Right now I will pause and say I'm done. I'm done. I can't do this anymore. Um, but fundamentally, as I gain capacity, I want to take more and more responsibility and bring in more and more care for the whole, not just for me. So I have a question about a word that comes up a lot that gets tossed around frequently these days, which is abundance. And I'm curious if we were to remove the word abundance from sort of the trappings of the dominant culture of capitalistic society, what does that word abundance mean to you if we're in right relationship to each other and to the earth? I, I love this because um, I had an aversion to the word abundance for years until I could untangle abundance from Abundance as it's spoken about now to abundance as natural abundance. And when I think about natural abundance, it is not about having more than you need. It is about the, the it's about things abounding. And it's about, it's about regeneration and it ties into the old ancient indigenous wisdom that says that when everyone takes only what they need, not more, and not less, then there will always be enough for everyone. That is the essential trust in life because it regenerates. But if you take more than you need, then it depletes. So I have one last question for you, which relates to the theme of the season of Hurry Slowly, which is how do we begin again, kind of synthesizing everything that the pandemic has helped bring into consciousness so if I were to ask you to share a question with listeners to help them reflect on beginning again, what would that question be? Um, that question would be, how can you fully connect with what you really need? Attend to what you really need and release the rest back into the flow. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Hurry Slowly. As we close out this conversation, I would invite you to think about how you can start to break your scripts, as Mickey said, in small interactions throughout your day. What could you do just a little bit differently to start to open up some new territory, to decrease separation, or to invite in new connection? This podcast is produced by Matt Susich with additional audio fine-tuning from Devin Craig Johnson. If you'd like to stay in touch, you can sign up for my newsletter at hurryslowly.co slash newsletter. Or if you'd like to make a contribution to the podcast to help us continue doing this work, you can visit hurryslowly.co slash donations. Mm -hmm.